I'm going to uh, invite you guys to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you'll find the section we'll be in this morning in the very first book of the Bible and the very first chapter of that book. We're going to be looking this morning at at Genesis 1, especially verses 26 and 27. Uh, We've been uh, this last month in a new preaching series here at Edgefield, one that we're calling What It Means to Be Human. And, and we're looking to the first three chapters of Genesis to, to, to see what we can learn from the place where God gives us his account of where we come from, why we're here, and what it means to live as, as people in his world that he made. Uh, when I was a, a junior in college, I first came across the, the work of a controversial Princeton philosopher and ethicist called Peter Singer. I've seen him called the most important living philosopher by some people and the most dangerous man alive by others. Uh, He might be both in a way if people were to take his ideas seriously. He's certainly an amazing philosopher because he's really good at making his case. He's a relentless arguer and he follows the logic where it takes him. He doesn't let sentiment and emotion get in the way. He just takes the logic all the way to the end. So he does what a philosopher is meant to do. But he's super dangerous if you were to take his ideas seriously uh, because of the ideas this man has spent his career trying to propagate. He became famous back in the 1970s for a book on animal rights that inspired the creation of PETA. But then soon after, just a couple of years after that book came out, he wrote a book called Practical Ethics, a book that, that applied some of the same logic that he'd used to talk about animal rights to how we should think about our lives as humans. According to Singer, well, you need a, you need a definition of, of worth for each life. You need to understand what makes a life worth living and worth protecting. And if we just assume, for, if our starting place is that all of, us got, all of us got here by the same basic process, whether you're a cockroach or, or a lab rat or a human like you or me, you got here through the same overall process of adaptation and change. So just because you fit in one species or another isn't enough to say that your life matters. We need another standard. And his standard for what lives matter, which lives are worth protecting, is a standard he calls personhood. It's a standard that's measured not by what species you belong to, but by what kind of self-consciousness you have, especially your ability to experience pain and and suffering. That means many animals qualify as a person by Singer's definition. Some pigs and cows and even lab rats count. But his argument is that actually many humans don't count. Many infants, some of the severely disabled Some of the aged don't fit his definition of personhood. For example, he points out that if if, if the parents of an unborn child learn that that child has severe disabilities that would affect that child's life and would affect their life as parents, it's, it's legal for them to terminate that pregnancy. That's true. In the United States right now, that's true. It's legal. He thinks that's the right call. But but Singer says, let's say the prenatal tests don't actually reveal that problem. Let's say you only realize the disabilities after the baby is born. And he would argue that killing that child outside the womb is really no different than killing it inside the womb. That's just an arbitrary line. 
The question is not whether it lives inside or outside the womb, but what kind of life will it live? And what's the best use of the time and the money that would otherwise go to caring for that child? Peter Singer is an activist. He is fully, fully up to the hilt, invested in, in protecting and propagating in, in vulnerable lives as he would define them. He works hard to, to seek good for the poor. He works hard against torture of animals and food production. And he, he does seem to care deeply for life. It's not as if life doesn't matter to him. It's that Singer just believes that, that some forms of life, if you were to extinguish them, will be better extinguished than living. Better for the world, maybe better for them. And at the very least, the, 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 the thousands of dollars and the intense amount of time and care that would be required to, to keep this life going could be better spent on other lives that would appreciate it more. That's his argument in practical ethics. It's pretty relentless logic. He's arguing, in other words, this is how he used his phrase, against a kind of speciesism that for him is just a couple steps removed from racism, where you privilege human life over other forms of animal life as if it's really any different. Most of us who don't get paid to think ourselves into a corner like this one know instinctively that can't be right. There's no way that's right. But friend, I wonder if you've considered, why is he wrong? What's wrong with the logic that Singer plays out? I mean, the fact is, he's just reasoning based on assumptions shared by a whole lot more people than would be comfortable with where he takes those assumptions. The question is whether there's anything different about humanity in this world. About, it, 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 the question really is, is, is there something worth protecting even when we don't protect other forms of life? Something about humanity that sets us off and if so, whether that thing applies to all humans or only to some humans, that's the question. And it's a question that Christians have an answer for, rooted in the scriptures. And the scripture's answer is rooted in the image of God. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. The answer of the Bible to this question, is there something different about humanity, something worth protecting that's unique to humans is 100% yes and that humans are unique because they're made in the image of God. I want to take you now to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Read for you the verses we'll unpack together and then say a bit more about how we're going to spend our time together this morning. If you found Genesis 1, I want to invite you, if you're able, to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read from verses 26 and 27. This is the word of the Lord. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is God's word. You can be seated. It's super clear from Genesis chapter 1 that what separates humans from the rest of creation is God's decision to make them in his own image after his likeness. In the image of God, he made them, we read. 
Male and female, he created them. That's clear. But what does it mean to be in the image of God? That's what we're going to spend the next two weeks looking into. I want to take my stab real quick at, uh, at a definition of the image of God and then spend the next two Sundays breaking down this definition for you guys. Here's my best shot at defining what it means to be in God's image. What is this image of God? The image of God is a special relationship to God with special responsibilities from God. What is the image of God? A special relationship to God with special responsibilities from God. Let me say the same thing a couple other ways. The image of God is a unique status that all humans possess in the world that comes with a unique summons from God in the world. The image of God gives our lives dignity and the image of God gives our lives purpose. And this idea is so important for understanding what it means to be human that we're going to spend these next two Sundays on the same idea. But next week we'll focus on purpose, on the summons, on the special responsibilities from God that come with being in God's image. And today we'll focus on the dignity that comes to every human life because we're made in God's image. When you hear me say dignity, I want you to think worth or value. What is a human life worth? What does the image of God, our creation in his image, mean for the dignity we possess as humans? And I want to unpack this idea in two steps today. Two points. Here's number one. The image of God means that human dignity is based on the love of God. The image of God means that human dignity, our worth as humans, is based on the love of God. This is what I mean when I say that the image of God is first a relationship, a special relationship that humans have to God. When the Bible mentions the image of God, it doesn't mention anything specific about us, any specific skill that we have as humans, or even our unique ability to reason, or our complex emotional lives, or any other attribute that, that we may have that a plant or a beetle doesn't have. The Bible doesn't connect image of God to any of those distinct human attributes. The emphasis is on who we are to God, on his unique attention to us and his unique investment in us. Here's how one theologian put it. The image of God is not something, something that's in us. It's something that's between us and God. Or another theologian put it this way. The image of God is not about capacity, but about connection. A connection that God made when he made us. And I think you can see this idea coming through in the, in the way our text reads. Just these two simple verses. Uh, last week, we, we looked at the whole of Genesis 1. And we talked about how, how that whole chapter builds with this poetic crescendo. This rhythm of language that the author uses to help us see that God made everything. And he made it exactly as he wanted it. The whole text builds to show this, this world is ordered by God and then filled by God in exactly the way that God wanted to do it. Verse by verse takes us through this process and each step is finished with God looking at what he's made and saying, that is good. And this building poem, this building repetitive, beautiful language 
all comes to a climax with verse 26. With the creation of humanity. Look at how these two verses are set off. If you read this, even, even in our language, but especially in the original language, it's like, it's like the poem comes to a screeching halt or the video all of a sudden snaps into slow motion where everything is more pronounced. Everything comes with more detail, with more attention. So we, we reach verse 26 and, and the God who has been speaking things into existence left and right starts to deliberate with himself over what he's going to do next. He had said light, and there was light. But here he says, let's make man in our image after our likeness. Let's give, let's give humans this special job in our world. And then verse 27, you get, you get a poem within a poem. Again, just a stylistic marker, a way of flashing neon at us saying, this matters more. So God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then at the conclusion of this act, just beyond what we read together a moment ago, where everything else that God has made has been said, he said, it's good, it's good, it's good. In verse 31, he steps back and he looks at these humans that he's made and he says, very good. Friends, this theme of God's special affection for humanity, it's a theme you can find throughout the Bible, not just in places where the, where the image of God phrase comes up, but, but all through. Here's my, probably my favorite example, besides what we're looking at here in Genesis 1. In Psalm 139, the psalmist David speaks about his own creation as an individual by God. Listen to how he describes it, the intimacy the beauty and power of this connection he has with his maker. David writes, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, into intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. You see what David is saying? You see everything about me. You put me together like a craftsman knitting together a wonderful woven blanket or something. I don't know. It's intricate. It's beautiful. It's detailed. It's intentional. And not only my body was created by you, but David's saying, you looked ahead and saw every single one of my days before they were there. They were in your mind and in your plan for me and for my good. Human beings are precious because they're precious to God. Human dignity is based on God's love for humans. Friends, that is a radically unusual view of what it means to be human. It was radically unusual back then when Genesis chapter 1 was first written. I've I mentioned a few times already just in the last couple of weeks that this opening chapter to Genesis is like picking a fight with, with the, the main views of Israel's neighbors about where the world came from and how, how we came to be and what our value is. It, the whole chapter is this, this big argument against the views of the pagans and for the view that, that God has revealed through, through his people to the world. And nowhere is this, is this 
argument more clear than in this section about God's creation of humans. Uh, the, the best creation account that we still have a record of from the time when Genesis was written was one that came out of the, uh, out of the kingdom of Babylon. And the way that this, that, that creation account describes where humans came from, well, let me just paint a picture for you. The whole world, I've mentioned this before, they believe it came out of a, a fight between gods over control. One god, a god Marduk, defeats another god, uses the body of that god to create the world that we all live in. And then Marduk condemned those gods who had sided against him with the other god that he defeated. He condemned them to be the ones who'd have to work the world, work the earth, cultivate it. They didn't want the responsibility, and who could blame them? It's a lot of work. So as a concession, this, this chief god, Marduk, he decides, all right, I'll form humankind to do the work. They'll work as slaves on behalf of the gods. Let me, let me just read this to you. This comes straight out of this ancient Babylonian account. And this is the section of the story where, where one of the fallen gods, one of the defeated gods is going to be used to create human beings. And listen to the, 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 the violence in this account. Arteries I will not and bring bones into being. I will create Lulu, man be his name. I will form Lulu, man. Let him be burdened with the toil of the gods that they may freely breathe. So they bound him, speaking of, of one of the defeated gods. They held him up. They inflicted the penalty on him. They severed his arteries. And from his blood, he formed mankind, imposed toil on man, and set the gods free. In this creation account, human beings at best are just an afterthought. I guess we need somebody to take care of this and the gods are causing trouble about it. They're griping and complaining. Okay, let's create humans to work it for us. At best, they're an afterthought. At worst, they're just property, just a means to an end. You won't find dignity. You won't find inherent value in that creation account. And friends, the perspective of Genesis 1 is no less out of sync than with the most common alternative today for where we came from, for how we got to be here. I mean, our age is a lot more secular than, than the age of, of Genesis chapter 1. We've trimmed out the gods from the way we see the world. You don't get creation from severed arteries of a beaten deity anymore. But humans are still, humans are still seen as the product of violent struggle. One species against all others. A battle for survival playing out over who knows how many years. And sure, maybe human beings in this account are not somebody's afterthought because there was no one there to think of them at all. But they're not anyone's personal project either. In fact, the notion that humans have a special place in the universe, it can come off as just ridiculous and even arrogant Kind of like a rural diner claiming a world-famous cup of coffee. That's the kind of thing only that diner would say about itself. A while back, I saw a, uh, I saw a provocative atheist poking some fun at this idea that Christians have, that humans have special dignity uh, on Twitter. He was like, think about it, guys. Think about what we know now about the scale of this universe. Think about how far we can see with our telescopes. You know, how much more we know now about how, how much is out there beyond what we can see. 
Maybe human significance made some sense when we thought the earth was the center of the universe, but it's, it's not. The earth is just one of many hunks of rock orbiting one mediocre star in a galaxy of at least 100 billion other stars. And that galaxy is itself just one of at least 125 billion and who knows how many more galaxies. And let's just say there was a God who made all of this and rules over it all. Are you really saying that a God who rules over a universe that vast has, has time to fearfully and wonderfully make you? To knit you in your mother's womb? To know and to number your days before you were here to live them? That's what you believe? Does that really make sense to you? And maybe, friend, that, maybe that critique right there sounds right to you. If it does, I want to give you just two things to think about this morning. First thing I want you to think about, first thing I want you to know is that this whole notion sounds almost unbelievable to us Christians too. <laughs> it really does sound almost too good to be true. And it's not even lost on the authors of the Bible that this is a crazy thought, nearly too good to be true. The Bible is presented sometimes as just this primitive document that, can't, that doesn't know anything about how the world is structured. So how, of course, the Bible thinks that, that humans matter. The Bible didn't know anything about the universe and how vast it is. But if what I read from David in Psalm 139 seemed arrogant and presumptuous to you, that he himself had been carefully and wonderfully made by God, listen to what David says in another psalm, Psalm 8, which I read earlier in the service. When I look at your heavens those heavens that David knew so little about. The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, David says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. David can't believe it. David is dumbfounded that God would give humans this significance. The notion that there's a God who rules over a universe as vast as ours and yet still has a special love for each of us, it would be too good to be true, friends. And it'd be crazy to assume that it's true unless that God told us it's true. And we believe that he has. We don't believe that, that humans have any kind of unique dignity because we deserve it. We believe it because that's what the Bible tells us is true. And we just receive it as a gift with open hands. Which brings me to the second thing I want you to think about this morning. If our view of human significance to God seems like a big leap of faith to you, I wonder, have you considered that the alternative takes a big leap of faith too? The alternative to this account for who we are and why we matter, it takes a big leap of faith too. Let me, let me tell you what I mean. Let's just, let's just for a second, just for the sake of, of, of this thought experiment, let's remove God and his love from the picture for a moment. Uh, let's assume just for a minute that we humans got here at the tail end of a blind and random process of adaptation and change over time. All right? And, and let's, let's face up to the fact that this world is vast. In fact, you will see barely any of it. No matter how much you travel, no matter how worldly you may be and, and what you get to experience in your days on earth, you will barely see any of it. It's so vast. And let's face the fact that most of the world's people will never even know you exist. 
And when you've died, those who did know that you exist will move on. And then they will die. And when a hundred years, no one will remember that you ever existed. Much less what sort of personality profile best suits you. Or what your favorite novel might be. Or who loved you. Or whom you loved. If that's what you believe about where you came from. If that's what you believe about where you're going. Friends, doesn't it take a tremendous leap of faith to get out of bed and go through your day as if what you're doing has any meaning at all? I think the real question is which leap of faith makes better sense of your experience of the world? Which leap of faith makes better sense of what your gut tells you is true about the value of human life? Which leap of faith can you live with? What fascinates me is that Peter Singer can't live with his leap of faith. Back in 1999, the New Yorker magazine did a huge spread on Singer. It was roughly 20 years after his most famous and controversial views had come out. And they're basically just checking in on him. So you still good with all that? Uh, You still sticking with it? And he did stand by all of it. Uh, But before the end of this piece, the New Yorker reporter brings up Singer's mother. By this time, Singer's mother, Peter Singer's mother, was suffering from advanced Alzheimer's disease. Uh, her, her self-consciousness was gone. By, by Peter Singer's own definition, his mother did not meet the standard of personhood. So how did he respond to that situation? Well, the article asks him about that and he admits to the fact that he responded to that situation by paying tens of thousands of dollars every year to have health aides live with his mother, take care of her needs. He acknowledged that that money could have been spent saving animals or relieving the poor rather than on his mother who didn't know what was happening to her. He acknowledged, this is a quote from him, that this is probably Not the best use you could make of my money. But he said, and I quote, it's different when it's your mother. Which view of human life you can live with really shows up when it's your mother, doesn't it? And friend, if you've got to take a leap of faith, why not leap into Genesis 1, into Psalm 8? You are made in God's image. Even if you haven't known it or honored him for it, you are. Your worth as a human is not something you have to build. It is not something you have to prove. It is something defined by his relationship to you. The God who made you, friend, has crowned you with glory and honor. Your life matters because it matters to him and he loves you. And this is just the beginning. This idea runs through the whole Bible and lies under everything we're hoping for from Christianity. Friend, if you're not familiar with what Christians believe, let me tell you, our whole faith is based not on what we earn, not on how well we perform in this life, not on what we build for ourselves and then sit back and admire. We're out of that game. Our whole faith is 
is depending from beginning to end on the worth that God gives to us as his gift. We believe that we have sinned against God, that we've taken his gifts for granted, that we haven't honored him as the one who gave us our very lives, much less everything else we've ever enjoyed. We have broken the relationship he made us for, in other words. But the solution that the Bible offers to us isn't some new pathway for how to prove ourselves, for how to make up for what we've done wrong, as if what we really need is someone to show us how to, how to fix this balancing act so that by the time we get to the end, our good outweighs our bad. What we believe is that, is that God himself has accounted for what we've done wrong. He sent his son to live a life that was perfect, just as we were to live, and then to die a death that he didn't have to die so that we wouldn't have to die the death that we should die for our neglect of him, for our rejection of him. And that now, because Jesus has done what he's done, we get what he deserves. The righteousness that's perfect, that covers our sin. This theme of God giving worth as a gift, you'll find it in Genesis 1, you'll find it all the way through the gospel, and you'll find it, Lord willing, one day when we stand before him clothed only in the righteousness of Jesus, with nothing to offer him except our gratitude, our faith that he can be for us what we could never have been for ourselves. This could be a faith that you have today. We would love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus, but not just to follow him, to rest on him and on the goodness God gives as a gift rather than what you may do for yourself. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? It means, first of all, that human dignity is based on the love of God. Human lives matter because they matter to God. You matter because of God's special love for you. That's, that's the first thing it means. And here's the second point. The image of God means that human dignity extends to every human life. Human dignity is based on God's love. That's point one. Point two is that human dignity belongs to everyone. It's based on what God sees, not on somebody's abilities. It's based on what God sees, not somebody's track record. It's based on what God sees, not somebody's breeding or social standing. The worth of a human life stems from the worth of that life to God. And the Bible says that every human is made in his image. That every human life has this special connection to God. And every human life matters because every human life matters to God. You can see that theme come up even in the two verses that we've already read from Genesis chapter 1. The poem within a poem in verse 27, it isn't just about Adam. God created man or humankind, all humans, in his own image, verse 27 says. And it continues... In this ancient culture where women were so often undervalued compared to men, our, our, our text continues to make sure and spell out that men and women bear the image of God. Male and female, he created them in his image. And then after this creation account, just a few chapters later, you see the same theme come up again. The image of God is used again. In Genesis chapter 9, only here, it's with a warning. If you kill one of these people, made in my image. Oh, that registers with God because they're made in God's image. You deface the image, it's in a threat to the image maker, to the one whose, whose, whose love gave them this image that they bear. 
Whoever sheds the blood of man, Genesis 9, 6 says, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Friends, I think by instinct we know that humans live, human lives matter. We, we certainly know that our lives matter. And we, I think we know that, that killing a cockroach is different from killing a kindergartner. But, but which human lives matter or which lives count as human, that's another story. All too often throughout human history, the circle around those lives that are worthy has been drawn too often, too closely around me and whoever happens to look like me. Um, a while back I read this book, I had some hard reading, uh, a, a book called Less Than Human, Why We Demean, Enslave, and Exterminate Others by a philosopher named David Smith. What he helps to show is a point that another author makes too, that, that that, that all too often throughout human history, the clearest, pa- clearest path to, to dignity for yourself is to degrade somebody else. If you want dignity for you, the clearest path to getting it is going to be to degrade someone else, to deprive dignity to them. He, he, the Smith walks through historical example after historical example showing that before one people can exploit another people, they first have to demean them. They have to define them as something other than the dignified human lives that are worthy of protection. Example after example, he shows the theme. Before they could be displaced, Native Americans had to be called savages. Before they could be bought and sold and beaten and abused, African slaves had to be labeled as property. Before they could be shipped away to camps and forced into gas chambers, Jews had to be labeled rats. And before the Hutus of Rwanda could kill hundreds of thousands of Tutsis, they had to label them cockroaches. Without a biblical understanding of the image of God, all too often, one person's dignity depends on another person's degradation. I wonder, friend, can you explain why that's not okay? By what standard can we measure the value of human life? Frederick Douglass knew the standard. Soon after the famous Dred Scott decision in the Supreme Court, a decision that that ruled that a slave who had been on free soil and returned to a slave state could not claim to be free because it was not possible for anyone of African descent to be a citizen of the United States. They lacked the qualities of, of personhood that, would, that are required for citizenship. That's, that's what the decision ruled. As soon as that decision passed, Frederick Douglass, former slave, famous abolitionist, commented on that decision. And this is what he said. This decision, it's an attempt to undo what God has done. To blot out, he said, the broad distinction instituted by the all-wise between men and things. And to change the image of the ever-living God into a speechless piece of merchandise. 
Such a decision, Douglas said, cannot stand. God will be true, though every man a liar. Douglas knew why that decision could not stand. And it had everything to do with the image of God in which he knew himself to be created. Friends, without the image of God, without what that tells us about the value of every single human life at every stage, I fear the standard for what lives matter is whether they matter to those with the power to say so. That's not good enough. But because of the image of God, as Christians, every life ought to matter to us because we know that every life matters to God. Our creation in God's image, it explains so much about why the Bible so often combines the commands to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Those aren't just two commands that were sort of thrown together because they were top of mind at that moment. It's not like two items on a to-do list, like, you know, don't forget to buy the groceries and don't forget to take out the trash. They just happen to be on the list for that day. These two go intimately together. Jesus summed up the whole law when asked about it with the commands to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself because he knew that if we love God, we'll love those who bear his image. Because we love God, we love those who bear his image. In fact, the letter of 1 John takes this even one step further. He basically says, you can tell whether you love God by whether you love your brother who bears his image. 1 John 4, if anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Friends, we in our community, as Christians who are living this life together, we want to be known for our love for image bearers wherever we see them. Because we love the God who loves them. We love the one who put his image on them. We want to be known, for example, as a people who honor one another. Every person, no matter who they are, no matter how they may behave, no matter what they may believe, no matter who they may associate with, every person bears God's image. And that means every person is worthy of our respect. Because God is worthy of our respect. And God made them. And God loves them. Think of it, friends. Think of it. Every person you look at on screen is an image bearer. That's somebody's child right there. That's somebody's sibling or friend. But more than that, you're looking at someone who's known and crafted and loved by God. Honor them by whether you look and how. Friend, every person you interact with online is an image bearer. Okay, not the foreign bots, all right? You know what I mean, though. Every person that you interact with online is an image bearer. We just can't allow ourselves to reduce anybody to their tribe or their views or to their stupid and irrational comments. We are not free to belittle anyone. That is not in our tool bag as Christians. Not, not, because, not because we know that they bear the image of God. 
You don't belittle people who bear his image. That's belittling him. Romans 12.10 says that we should outdo one another in showing honor. (laughs) Can you imagine in these polarized times what a clear and a powerful and a beautiful witness we'd have if we really went for that, for that? If we really took Romans 12.10 as our theme verse and said, we're going to outdo one another in showing honor to everybody. What if we were known for showing honor, especially to those who are different from us or who disagree with us? What if we practiced that here among us in our community and then took that with us out into the world? And friends, we want to be known as not just people who honor other human life, but as people who who love it wherever we see it and want to see our human fellow humans flourish wherever we can, who want to look for opportunities to cultivate and to protect lives, especially where they're vulnerable and especially where they don't look like ours. In our polarized times, it can seem like the tribe you belong to determines what image bearers you're allowed to care about. But we don't have to play by those rules. We serve King Jesus. We see what he sees. That means we ought to be drawn to image bearers who haven't been born yet, despite the fact that they don't look anything like us and can't talk like us, can't benefit society yet in some immediate or quantifiable fashion. And we ought to care for the image bearers who carry those lives, especially when they're alone, facing a burden that seems impossible in desperate circumstances that they didn't ask for and can't escape. God's people are known for their care for the lives of the foreign born all through the scriptures. People who are not just from different families, but from different countries altogether. People who are speaking different languages than ours, who are carrying different customs. People who frankly are often worshiping different gods, practicing different religions. None of that matters to us as Christians. These new neighbors bear the image of God. When we see them, we see something of him. And because we love him, And because the God who loves us loves them. Well, that ought to be enough for me and you too. Would you pray with me that the God who made us, the God who loves us, the God who wraps us up in his image would help us to love his image bearers the way that he does. Let's pray that right now together. Father, we thank you for speaking to us so that we can know who we are. And we thank you that you have crowned us with glory and honor we never earned, can't possibly deserve. We receive that gift and thank you for it. And we ask that you would help us to make good use of this gift and how we love and care for one another. Give us your eyes to see one another as you see us. And give us the courage to honor you and follow your ways in how we treat one another. We pray that that the way we love your image bearers would bring glory to you as the maker and ruler over this world. And the one whose image they bear, the source of all goodness and glory. We pray this to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.